Welcome to Your Best Riding Life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Riders Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the writing and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. Oh my goodness, I am so glad that you're listening in today. I've already had a little bit of prep time with our industry expert, and you are going to love what you received today. Today, we're going to be looking at writing split-time novels. Have you ever considered it? Are you looking at your writing and going, there's something missing, there's something more? What can I do here? What, what does my reader need to experience that will bring that aha, that will deepen that emotional connection with your writing. Oh, my friends, you don't want to tarry very far from from your computer, from your headset. If you're going to take a walk, walk with us in your head. I uh, Believe me, you're going to enjoy the journey. You're going to enjoy it. My industry expert is Rachel Hauk, and Rachel is a New York Times USA Today and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. She served on the American Christian Fiction Writers Executive Board for 18 years and mentored writers through My Book Therapy, you're going to have to check that out, for more than 15 years. She recently retired from both, and she's a worship and prayer leader in her community and a semi-enthusiastic gym rat. Ooh, we'll have to find out about that. Hauk has been married to her fantastic hubby for 30 years. They are servants to an ornery cat. Now that is a story. Please welcome, if you will, please, Rachel Hauk to Your Best Writing Life. It is so good to have you here with us, Rachel. Hey, Linda. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. So let's take a quick peek behind your personal curtain, if you will. And Rachel, would you share something with us that maybe folks won't read in your bio? Oh, my goodness. I was going to go back to semi-enthusiastic gym rat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I could do that, too, though. I, I, I like that. Semi-enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah, this is good. Yeah. That's the when you get up in the morning and go, let's go to the gym. Let's go to the gym. <laughs> But my husband and I have, this isn't in the bio, we have a standing breakfast date, two, maybe three, sometimes four mornings a week at a diner just like a mile from our house. And it's almost like our second kitchen. So mm. one year, one morning, a couple years ago, my husband was like, oh, I don't want to go to the gym. Or he was lagging behind and I said, hurry up, let's go. I'm hungry. Because if we go to the gym, then we get to go to breakfast. And so our major <laughs> motivation for the gym is breakfast at Dottie's Diner. Uh, we know everybody there. It's like old home week every time we walk in. So that's how I'm semi-enthusiastic. I've always enjoyed the gym. I've always enjoyed working out when I was at Ohio State. Uh, one of my sorority sisters and I would get up every morning, crack it on, and head down to Larkin's Gym to work out. And as I've aged and I've gotten into lifting weights, the fun part is you start to see the results. And yes. I'm pretty darn proud of my arms right now. So <laughs> I'm there with you. I am yeah. there with you. Good. I will let me tell you, when you can go without, you know, you go sleeveless 
and you're not double waving at people, it really does give you a nice feeling of, of confidence. It does. And the whole time saying, thank you, Lord. And I don't mind waving at people across, you know, a, across the way because it's not knocking them over with something else. So <laughs> yes, Lord, is that right. ego? I'm sorry, Lord, don't mean to do that, but you've given I us just, the body that we have. So that's right. I feel like I'm just sculpting what he's already given me. I'm taking this raw lump of clay and doing something. I love it. it. And I, what I've, I've reached the point now that resting arm has shape. And so I love going sleeveless and I'm kind of like, Hey, wave at me so I can lift my arm and show you my <laughs> bicep. <laughs> isn't that funny isn't it funny what we what we look at what we consider especially yeah. as we're getting just getting a little bit older and you know I've I've always embraced age I've never looked at chronological age as a deficit I've no. always looked at it as wow one more year of experience and one more year of opportunity and Absolutely. and what is what is ahead you know, what's Absolutely. ahead and raising a lot of kids and a lot of grandbabies and staying very active to me was the same. I'm, I'm part of a, um, uh, traveling, touring children's theater and oh, it's wow. adults How that fun. perform for children. And I've been part of it for 27 years and it's amazing when you yeah. go and lift and set up a stage and ju have to jump off of a stage and do everything and you're going, and this year I'll be 66. So that's I'm like, amazing. being able to do that, there it is. Bam. That's, that's, that's amazing. And let me just say, probably we have a lot of women listeners and any male listeners. If Don't be discouraged by your age or your size because lifting weights is good at any age. And actually, mm -hmm. I feel like I've been lifting since I was in my 20s, not always consistently. There are years that I was traveling for my corporate job and early when we first got married we weren't gym members and we anyway but i've probably been lifting consistently uh, for 40 years and mm. I, but when i really said okay i'm hitting it two days a week and i've done that for four years the results are they, they're there the, the right. results are there so i just would say little little physical encouragement to anybody out there who's thinking about it stick with it you'll see the results that's right just start don't make it difficult. Yeah, you're not too old. Make it easy. You're never right. too old. Never too so old. So good. Great word. Great word. And we're never too old to learn more about how we can perfect our writing, bring a mm. sense of excellence to it. So our topic for today is writing split time novels. Now, some of you may be going, split time? I've heard of different things. Uh, time slip all these other. So help us out here, Rachel. What sure. exactly is split time? Well, split time, also called dual time, is a story set in a historical, you know, in the past, historical line and a contemporary line. Time slip, slip time, I'm emphasizing the P here, is not split or dual time. Time slip speaks of slipping through time, time travel, where you may even have a character who's slipping through time. And, and split time, dual time, the characters are consistent in their own timeline. So you're looking at a historical character and a contemporary character. Maybe uh, usually what I would do is have a, a historical romance. So there'd be the hero and the heroine and a contemporary romance hero and heroine as a part of the subplot of the overall arcing story. So split time is just looking at 
the story from two different eras. And the goal is to tie them up at the end. Either the past, usually the past heals the present, but I have a book where the present healed the past. So mm. those are the opportunities that you have with split time. And, and that's what it's generally about. You're looking at two different timelines. Okay. So when we're looking at the different ideas behind this style of novel writing and you say, well, you know, because one time period can influence another time period. And what else is it that we need to know about this? It's, it's not easy. I'll say that out, mm. the, out the gate. It's, it is a little mm. bit difficult. And usually these books are anywhere from 95,000 to 100,000 words plus. These are wow. not short books because you basically have 50,000 word historical story and a uh, 50,000 word contemporary story. And then somehow you're going to tie them up at the end. And so really kind of what is the heart? Why do we, why split time? Why would we write a split time story? Well, for me, it started with what if I could talk to my grandmother, my great grandmother about decisions that they made in their life? What if I could drop in on some pivotal moment? Like, why did you decide to marry grandpa? Why did you decide to move here? Why did you decide to go to there to college or take that job or what happened to you in your first love? You could do any number of things. If you could sit down and have a chat with an ancestor, wouldn't we all love that? And for me, mm. that what became the my motivation of behind Split Time, why I liked it, because I wanted to talk to a character in the past who was would influence the character in the present. And of course, in the present, we don't know. We're just tooling along in our own life. I love the saying, you know, history began when we were born. It's not true. But a lot of times we act like history began the day that I was born. And so if you you don't know what's a decision that someone else has made, either in your family or in your life or your or even in our culture, that influences where we are today. And it's nice to know if we could the reasoning behind that. And so that's kind of how I jumped into split time um, because I just, I was fascinated with the idea of having somebody in the past do something that profoundly impacted the character in the present. Well, and I'm very interested in how you have the individuals in the present influencing those in the past, but maybe we'll yeah. get to talk about that in a moment. And what you said resonated or resonates with me, Rachel, because I look at my family history. I look at where my parents were born. They were born into families that were farmers. They had a lot of children. And it was almost like the Waltons, where yeah. if y'all if are too young to know that, look it up. Okay. Right, right. Um, where, where families stayed together. You know, mm -hmm. grandparents or grandma and grandpa or great grandma and grandpa, if they were still alive, they've stayed in the family unit and their influence on the children, the grandchildren was such a huge opportunity, a huge moment of, of value. And like I said, influence that I look at and consider what would have happened if. Exactly. Or which decision caused my mother to walk this way in her life? Exactly. And what if that decision hadn't been made? My yeah. mother was the oldest daughter in a family of, I believe there were 11, yes. and several of them passed at a very young age. Mm -hmm. 
but it was like as soon as a baby was born, they were handed through the curtain to my mother. Oh, wow. Her raising or having that part of uh, partaking in, for a better word, that experience, she was dealing with babies from the time she was a little girl. Yeah. And the thought of how that impacted her raising her own children. Because I see a lot of references that when I knew, found out more about mom's backstory, found out more about family history, I went, well, there we go. That makes sense There's now, a, right? Yeah. Right? It makes sense now. Yeah. To be able to write that would be fantastic. Yeah, it's it's fun to look at. And of course, as a writer, as a storyteller, that's what you're doing. You're digging down, you're finding the motivation. Of course, the fun part about fiction is it's all you can make it as hyperbolic as you want. Like, oh, would, would did that really happen in real life? You know, you take real life as a boilerplate, although truth is stranger than fiction. I will say that. I've heard some pretty crazy stories. But you think, I'll just take that little nugget of what of my mother, who the baby was handed to her outside of the birthing bed in the curtain, and she was in charge and she was eight years old or however old you want to put her. And then you just say, what did this, what did this cause a wound or cause a desire? What did this mm -hmm. do, do to her? And then you age her 10, 15 years. And here she is about to be married and she doesn't want to have children. Mm. So, or, or however you want to play it sure. out. So that's the beauty of taking a nugget like that and thinking, what are all the ways that this kind of experience could impact a character in the negative? And how am I going to heal that as the journey of the story? So mm. that is uh, generally what happens through the split time, through a split time story. Is there something in each of both of the characters, just a longing or there's just something that's missing that the author gets the chance to do some kind of discovery. I use an object. I've done a desk, uh, a dress, um, a mm. house. So I use an object as the thing that kind of drives the story. And, and there's where the secrets are discovered. And that was something I was going to ask. I know you kind of shared your, how you, the desire or the, the concept of what happened when, what, you know, with my, uh, family with my the life prior to me what occurred and kind of walking you into that I think I may want to write in this but I was curious as to what are the prompts that you use when you're writing a split time and you say that you use objects yeah. I, that's that makes me curious there yeah I think for me if I were advising someone to write a split time novel I would say you have to have that thing that the contemporary character comes across that launches the story. Mm. It could be someone coming up to them and saying something, but then how does, how does it take, Oh, um, I came to tell you your mom's not your mom or whatever. Then that has to, is that strong enough to drive the whole story? Can you bring that back around a couple more times without sounding repetitive or writing what I call in circles? So, you know, when I, when I came up with the idea for the wedding dress, and my first split time novel was Susan Meisner's Shape of Mercy. And it was set in a contemporary and in the Salem and during the Salem witch trials. And so mm -hmm. I just was fascinated at this idea. And so what her, her contemporary character was uh, transcribing letters and stuff that they wrote during the Salem witch trials. And so that was kind of her, let's go back to that moment that you kind of have to have a, 
let's go back to this piece here to kind of like keep the story, the two stories on the same page together, whether you're at historical timeline or the contemporary timeline. So I used a wedding dress that the contemporary heroine found. And along the way, she's going to discover that who actually owned their dress originally. And it's going to be a uh, an ancestor to her. She didn't know she had. Uh, I, I did a desk where the character is an author and she finds an unpublished manuscript. She's in a huge writer's block and her first novel was a huge success. She's the daughter of, you know, like, a uh, Mark Twain. She's, you know, she's the daughter of a noted American author and, you know, she's won all these awards and so she has all these expectations. She's a huge writer's block. She's not making her deadline. And she goes down to Cocoa Beach for a story. That's part of the story. <clears throat> anyway, she discovers this book, unpublished novel. And she's like, oh, I'm saved. And that launches her journey. And so what she ends up doing, though, that unpublished novel ends up being something that she, her family needs to make right with the family mm. in the past, with the person who put the novel in the desk drawer. So that was, that was kind of a turn it on, turn it upside down. That's what I always say. I'm like, well, let's take what we would normally do and turn it upside down and see what's there. See what's on the bottom. Can we do something with that? Can we change it up mm. a little bit? Can we do something a little different? So. So good. So good. All right. Share with our listeners what you consider the key structural components to a well-told split time story. And folks, we're going to have, um, some references for you. We'll have, I know that Rachel's being very gracious and she's going to have a link where you can get this information as well. So I'm going to kind of toss it to you, Rachel, and walk us through. All right. Uh, the first component you need is very well-developed characters. So there's going to be those things that you all know to do as storytellers. You need a, a contemporary and a historical heroine that have a journey to take. So I always do a dark moment story of their past, something that wounded them, that created a wound. And when the story opens, you know, they might be in their 20s, maybe late teens or maybe mid 30s. They think that I got life. I got the tiger by the tail. I've, I know what I'm doing with my life. But there's this thing, the secret desire in their heart. And I always do this little knock, knocking sound and go, it's going, I went out. I went out. And that's really what the story is going to be about is discovering who they really are. And that's what your epiphany is all about. That's what, you know, the grand conclusion is about at the end. Um, so you need a well-developed character heroine. You need a well-developed hero. You know, they have to want something, you know, what is the goal of the story? What do they want? All of those components that you guys are learning and, and taking copious notes at, at, a, at, at writer's shops or workshops or conferences or when you're looking at stuff online. But the other thing is you have to figure out how are you going to weave the historical component with the contemporary story without uh, being cliche? Like it can't always be the grandmother and the granddaughter or the grandfather and the granddaughter. Um, how, what, is, what is the historical storyline? How does it actually impact the contemporary storyline? And is it compelling enough to keep the readers going in between? So what you're going to do is you're going to start probably in the, in the contemporary storyline and then something happens at the end of that opening chapter that flips you into the past. And so that's another thing that you just have to figure out as the writer, how are you going to seamlessly and with some level of interest, flip the reader from the contemporary timeline into the past. And so that 
that leaves you with those. Those are fun things for me. Like, can I have the contemporary heroine say, or hero say something that flips the story into the past? And then I open the past with the line or the place or the position. Like, I don't know what to do with this old desk. And then I would flip into the, the historical line and there she is sitting at the desk trying to write her story. And so there's some, you know, if you think about a movie and how they move between scenes, you kind of want to do that on the page. And then in the very end, you're going to want to save some of that because as you get to the end, you're still want a black moment at the end. You're still going to want an epiphany for both timelines. And then when you get to the end, you're mostly going to be in the contemporary setting and something that they discover about the past, which has been the whole story or that those characters in the past is going to suddenly kick in and start making sense to them. And so that's when they know, Hey, I know who made the dress or I know who had this desk and what this was all about. I know um, what this house was all about and why I inherited it. So th those are the things that you're going to, to want to have. You know, like I did it with the wedding shop and the wedding chapel there was storylines where people were, you know, trying to fix up this wedding shop and she doesn't know that the person who owned, founded the wedding shop or owned the wedding shop was actually her aunt through this kind of crazy family story. And so those are some of the things you, you kind of have fun with. And I like how, you know, we are weaving that one thread all the way through so that it's recognized but it's having a different impact in the different times. And exactly. so how do you then, when you come to the end, is a time, or excuse me, is a split time novel something that can be a series? Is it something that, I mean, because we're talking a lot of words here. Yes. Is it best as a one-off book? What are your thoughts in that? Can you do shorter um, novels that intertwine? Is that even a concept that's doable? I, I think anything is doable as long as you have the heart for it. And as long as some character in the story says to you, hello, I have a story for you to tell. So mm. I think, can you take those same characters and continue them? Probably not. Because you've come to a conclusion, like I do get letters from readers saying, oh, is there going to be more to their story? And I'm like, no, because you will hate me because I sewed it all up to a nice, happy, satisfying ending. And then if I'm going to write a story about them again, I'm going to have to mess them all up. And you guys are going to be mad at me because <laughs> what happened to their perfect love? What? Oh, don't tell me he's, his eye has strayed or don't tell me she's wanting out of the marriage. What are you talking about? And so those kinds of things, but you can take another character. So in the wedding collection, I wrote the wedding dress and I thought, well, that one and done. I've written a split time story. What else is there to say? And my publisher came back to me and then I wrote the Royal Wedding series, which was just straight up contemporary. And then my publisher came back to me and said, Hey, do you got any more of those wedding dress stories? And I just happened to be on vacation with my husband in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And I was on my way down to, from our cabin to have a call with the publisher because we didn't have a good cell service in the cabin. And I drove by this wedding chapel in the Glen. And I mm. thought, oh, the wedding chapel. And it just pinged with me. I call it the ping. And so I said to my publisher at the time, I said, what about the wedding chapel? And she goes, sold, <laughs> done, yeah. do it. And so by the time I got back to the cabin and checked email, I had, she was like, the whole team's in, write it, go for it. So wow. I, I don't even, I don't even know what that is. So again, I had to figure out 
was this, this was a wedding chapel that had no weddings. Mm-hmm. So, and it was 50, 60 years old. Why had there been no weddings? What is this? So now I have to have like the wedding dress had its own story. The wedding chapel had its own story. And what, so when the contemporary heroine starts looking into the wedding chapel, cause she starts, she gets called to take photographs there. She starts digging into the history of it and she finds out she has a family history and deep dark secrets in her family that she didn't even know existed. Mm. I don't think her, even her parents knew existed and the same with the shop. So this girl comes back, she'd served in Afghanistan and she was, she had um, demobbed out of the military. And so she's trying to find something to do when she was a little girl. She always said, I want to, I want to restore the wedding shop because it was defunct at the time when she was a little girl. So she, decides to take on this reconstruction project and relaunch the wedding shop. And then for me, I always do something supernatural. So in her case, women who had bought their dresses there over the decades would come and bring their dresses back. So she started getting this vintage inventory. And then some people would just give her money. I really want to see the shop come back. I had my wedding dress here and your aunt, or she didn't know it was her aunt, but, and Cora was so good to me because she was running it during the depression. And so I, so I was able to kind of even build in some depression stories with, in the historical timeline. And, and I write in the South, so there's lots of other things I can take a look at as far as the communities are structured. And so that's one, one of the things that I think is very important is really digging into the heart of what the community looked like 50, 60, 100 years ago. And what is the importance of that today? What can we learn from that today? So, hmm. And that's good. Books that come with entertainment value. I there's, yeah. I love them. I mean, they're good. Yeah. They have entertainment value. I had uh, shared with you that um, I'm part of a professional theater group, um, and we perform for children. We performed in a lot of places. Uh, we were in China. We toured in China for 23 oh, wow. days. Man, and fantastic. while we were in China performing, we consider ourselves edutainers, so educational entertainers. And uh, the question was posed to me by the gentleman who was our tour guide. He got us into these huge theaters and, I mean, just prestigious. It was crazy. And after the first performance, he said, you're teaching. And we said, yeah. I said, well, Mm. we're kind of educational entertainers. And he said, why? Why not just have it be fun? Why do you have to teach something? And I said, because we love to leave a place better than when we found it, how we found it. And so if we can leave something there, well, that's what I'm hearing from you is in the story, there's an entertainment value, but having that nuance of learning, capturing something new, that experience that may have been lost as you bring your story to a close, that just gives such a deeper, richer, um, lingering if you would, a lingering with the story that helps people to remember it more. And as they see the end, they go, ah, but is it really? 
because there's something else that they take with them. I love for readers to feel like they spent 360 pages with friends Mm. and that somehow this is the beauty of a book. The reader gets to be a part of the story. You know, you're entertained by a movie. You're moved by a movie. We love movies. They, they cling with us sometimes after we've seen them. You don't really get to be a part of the movie. Mm. Uh, Music moves us in a different way, but a book you're in the story. You can become a character in the story because you usually relate to one of them Mm. in a deeper way. So I love that. And so what my goal is to entertain. And even when I write the historical part, I'm not interested in giving you a historical lesson. I don't give you layers and layers of historical detail when something was built. I try to find uh, maybe a true location. I I try to find a nugget of a true story, maybe an architect, so a wedding shop. I tried to find a noted Tennessee architect that would have been around about the time that the wedding shop was built and I threw his name into the story. But what I'm trying to find, what I love is stories of people. So Mm -hmm. I want to find a story set in the thirties that is a picture of what it looked like for a lot of people in the thirties. And then over time, you know, this Linda, we tend to flatten history and Mm. like in the past, everyone was this way. Or there were no opportunities for women in the past, or there were no da 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 da. Mm. And and while things have definitely changed, we know that's true. And 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 the the culture has changed, society has changed. Women have a lot more opportunities because we're not needed in the home. Nobody is scrubbing clothes in a sink against the washboard anymore. So, or we're not needed in the fields anymore to help our husbands farm. So we have more opportunities to pursue our own passions. But I like to so look at the past and go. Is there a woman who was on the farm doing a washboard? What, what's her story? How does she feel about that? Or is there a woman in the 30s who ended up going to medical school? Mm-hmm. How does she feel about that? What does that look like? And that was really kind of part of the struggle of the writing desk is that the woman was, um, she was a Gilded Age socialite. Her parents were part of Mrs. Astor's 400. And she wanted to be a novelist. And her mother just thought that was absolutely ridiculous. And mm. I took a little bit of uh, Consuela Vanderbilt, who became the Duchess of Marlborough. I mean, took a little bit of her story because her mother, Alva, all but forced her. Well, she forced her, not all but. She did force her to marry the Duke of Marlborough. And she went down the aisle with the veil over her face because and she never, I don't think, I don't know if she lifted it or not, because she was crying so hard. Her eyes were all puffy and red because she actually loved somebody else. And so I set up my heroines, Birdie was her name. I set her up to be in a similar situation, but she really wanted to be a novelist. And nobody thought that a 20-year-old socialite would actually be a novelist. And so her book was stolen and given to someone else. And then that's part of the story. But yeah, I really love to look at how things were, but knowing humanity it wasn't all everybody was one way. There was always right. those people off the bell curve. <laughs> right. And, and I, I mean, to me, that is truth. You know, I, I have nonfiction series written, co-authored, linked personalities. It's a quick guide to personalities. Mm. And when someone would reference, well, all men do this and all women right. do this. And I go, but they don't. But they don't. That's true. God didn't design them like that. I mean, so so I'm I'm traveling with you right there. Split yep. time. I'm traveling Split with time. you. We're going. I've got, <laughs> I've got it. 
So what is your best selling split time novel? Oh, the Wedding Dress. Uh, came out in 2012. Mm. It was my first one. It was a one book deal. I actually think if I actually think that was a here we appreciate that you wrote books with Sarah Evans for us contract. That wasn't said to me, but it's very rare to get a one book deal. So I had done three books. Um, I had done let's see, two books uh, with Thomas Nelson at the Nashville series, which did not good at all. And, but I learned a lot and they were fun to write. And then I kind of was doing chiclet when chiclet was fading out. And then I did the low country series. And then they came to me and asked me if I would write a series of books with country artist, Sarah Evans. And I think largely because I knew I had learned the country music industry from writing the Nashville series. So I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. So as a result of that, um, and my Nash, my low country books did really well, but after I finished Sarah's books, they came back to me with a one book contract. And I think it was kind of like, thank you for writing those books for Sarah. But I, I think I was on my way out the door, to be honest, um, mm. because, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business and it needs to be a business. Yes. They're not, they, and they were very good to me. They, they have been good to me that I was with them for 15 years. I mean, they were very, very good to me. I love Thomas Nelson, everyone at Thomas mm. Nelson, love you guys. Um, and I had a lot of good, good years and good stories with them, a lot of fun with them. But, you know, at that, at that point, I think they were looking at me going, is this girl going to, going to go to the next level? Mm. And I was on, I'd gone to a girl's weekend. This is crazy with people I met on Twitter who, oh. uh, one of them was one of them, uh, Jennifer Dashley actually worked at Thomas Nelson. Um, another woman, Tammy Hine actually had been the president of Thomas Nelson. She was uh, no longer, no longer there. She was doing something else. And then they had taken on African-American author, Kim Cash Tate. And so she was at Thomas Nelson writing fiction for them. Uh, check out Kim Cash Tate, guys. She's awesome. Anyway, uh, we were all like saying hi to each other on Twitter. And we said, let's get together. And then we said, well, let's really do it. So here I am in Gatlin, Tennessee at, at Tammy's house. And they're talking about her daughter getting married. And Tammy said something to the effect of, you know, when she, she, she put on that dress, you just knew it was the one. And I'm telling you, I was gone. I was like, ooh, wow. what if there's a wedding dress that's like 100 years old? And, four, and I just started kind of needling, noodling the concept. And then I turned to them some minutes later and go, guys, what about a 100-year-old wedding dress that four women wear over 100 years? And they had gone on, um, like I said, Jennifer was vice president, I think, of Gifts and Children. Tammy had been president of Borders and Thomas Nelson, and Kim had been was an had been an entertainment attorney. So they're all off talking about something else like business and something. You know, I'd just been a corporate slacky in my corporate life, and and they all looked at me like, oh yeah, good, yeah, Rach, do that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. It was totally like, hey, let's paint the walls green. Like they, what are you talking about? And so then right before we go to bed, each one of them came to me separately like, no, Rachel, we really like the idea. We're really on board with it. It sounds good. <laughs> and I called my I called my editor and we discussed it. She says, I have chills. And so I had pitched something else. And so we ditched that. And I wrote the wedding dress. And it, you know, before it even, it was one of those ones you knew. We just knew it was going to be a hit. And uh, in the meantime, Thomas Nelson had leadership changes. And so when it came out, I mean, it, it came out in, April and I got a royalty check in May. Like if you know the publishing industry, that doesn't happen. 
you know, it sold out. I mean, it earned out. It was a one book contract. So that's, that makes it easier, but it kind of earned everything out and then some before the book even hits shelves. So um, that was, that was a really good, um, and it, it just kind of took off. And then in 2015, it, um, at the end of 2013, when Amazon was doing daily deals, Thomas Nelson got Colin Coble at the daily deal for Christmas, which is the number one day for daily deals and got me new year's Eve, which is the second day for daily deals. And we, we both just sold super well. And then we went, went into 2015 and they put it on sale and I hit the USA today list. Somebody wrote me an email, congratulations. And I was kind of like, for what? You know, did I did I post my writing accomplishment today? Or did I, I, did I wrote 2,000 words? I don't know. It's just like, you're on the USA Today list. And I was like, what? So so then in, then in, um, and I was writing the, the wedding chapel at the time. Then in December, they put the book, they put like 100 books on sale that Christmas. And the wedding dress just outsold all of them. And in fact, HarperCollins Corporate, the president was like, what book is this? Where, what is that one of those books with a bonnet on it or something? What is this? What is this? I, it, with a bonnet on it. Yeah. It was the number one selling ebook of all of HarperCollins for like the week. I think it was on the daily deal or something. Maybe it may not have been the time it was the, with the other hundred, but one of those times that it was on sale, it like was the number one ebook that week in all of HarperCollins. So anyway, we went So then they, they come around in February. So Rachel, we're, it's on sale again. And I was did the little kind of eye roll, like, really? I have other books, you know. And um, Amazon put it on the front page of their monthly deals. So they had moved to monthly deals by, by now. And it was, I forget who was first, and then me. And a friend of mine said, well, my, my Amazon page is customized to me. I said, yes, at the top. At the bottom, it's customized to Amazon. And it was my book and then it was people like uh jill chavez and lisa jackson all these you know major general market authors uh catherine ray who was thomas nelson also was a part of that kind of the first if you scroll you'll find their books otherwise you can't i've had monthly deals since and i wasn't on the front page of amazon and if you didn't know my title was on sale and type in the name you wouldn't have found it so and it, we were downloading like 900 a day it was crazy and there was this part of me is like, do you think we'll hit the New York Times? But I just said, you know what, Rachel? You just let God worry about it. You just go about your business. And then I went to a writer's retreat with Susie Warren. We did, at the time, we were doing Deep Thinkers and Destin. And we had a week with about 18 authors, helping them work out their stories and craft their stories. And on the last day, um, Susie and I, along with one of the other staff members, Elena Terranium, we would just have a hangout day at the beach and just chill, relax, talk. And I got a phone call. It's like, Rachel, everyone's in the room together. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, and you know what? It's, you feel like you're, at, at, like here I am in my 50s at the time thinking, what did I do? Am I in trouble? <laughs> right? Why is everybody in the room? Am I fired? <laughs> and they're like, you are a New York Times bestselling author. And I about hit the ground. I was number nine. And the next week I was number two. And then for nine weeks, this is really fun. And nine weeks, I stayed on the New York Times in the top 15 for nine weeks. And I floated between, above, or below two of my favorite books from 2015, Kristen Hanna's Nightingale and The Girl on the Train. And I rode the New York Times for nine weeks with those books. So, yeah, it was, it was super exciting. And 
you know, I haven't hit, I had a New York Times bestseller since, but I'm just so honored that I had one at all because it's one, it's super hard, super, super hard to get. Uh, Two, in the Christian market, it's even super, 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 super hard to get because we just don't track the, the stores that track. And, you know, being, selling well on Amazon isn't enough. You have to sell well at Barnes and Noble. You have to sell well on Kobo or Apple. You have to sell well everywhere. So I, I just consider an act of God and in, in all honesty. Uh, I don't, because Thomas Nelson didn't strategize it and try to make it happen. They supported it once it did happen uh, and, and did some things to make sure that, that it was still noticed and, and did some publicity for it. But yeah, it, it was just the Lord flat out all credit. <laughs> and I think that it's great, Rachel, that, you know, we see God bring everything together. I mean, it's just tightened it up. One wonderful opportunity fell into another. Mm-hmm. Right. And as we look at the hand of God and how he is working in and through the opportunities that he's given us, we can see that he'll take one section or one opportunity and make it into something that we really have no control over. What we're to do is just walk in the steps that he has given us. We are to be obedient to his call, not really to worry about promoting ourselves and promoting or trying to give us access to get to the table. What God does is he is the one that will seat us at the table that he desires us to be. And then in that process, we say, okay. Absolutely. And he takes everything and puts it all together. He sews it together for his good. Absolutely. And when we allow him to do that, instead of trying to make ourselves be the one that fits in, you know, it, we couldn't ask for anything better. We couldn't ask for anything better. So, right, Rachel Hauk, what brings you joy? That is a beautiful question. I, I have a lot of things that bring me joy. I, I love my, my home, my husband. We don't have children. We have what I call OPK, other people's kids, because we did youth ministry for 20 years. And we're actually Oma and Opa to a family with nine children. That brings me joy. Uh, my my family, my siblings, uh, they bring me joy. We get together with my mom's side of the family every year in June, and I'm, I'm it's coming up, and I'm already looking forward to it. We laugh. We just have the best time. Um, I, my sister and I are very close. She's 10 years younger. It's just so much joy within my family, with my brothers and my nieces and nephews. Uh, writing the end of a novel, <laughs> that brings me a lot of joy. The end, two of the best words. Um, and you know what, really... In this, I've been on this journey in a, in a kind of a profound way the last two years, or the last year especially, just those sweet moments of with the Lord. Like not settling for, I had my quiet time, I read my Bible, but going, God, I want to commune with you. I want to feel your heart. I want your presence. And I've just been encountering the Lord mm. in that way in the last year. And it's been warfare at some level, but it's also been just this sweet, sweet presence and that, it, that really brings me a lot of joy. I could just sit in that forever. <laughs> mm. I hear that, being able to sit in the presence of the Lord and just to experience him more. It's just a fabulous thing. 
Fabulous, fabulous. Mm. So share with us one thought that you'd really like to leave our listeners with, a word of encouragement, something that you would like to share with them. I would love to give it to them. Uh, it's a long haul business. Stick with it. You may, I was not a hit coming out the gate. I was not. And I, when I was in college, everyone said to me, you, you got it. You, you can do it. You got a voice. Um, I did not win awards. Uh, it was not my publisher's favorite by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Stick with it. Write the next book. Don't worry about your social media numbers. Don't worry about your sales numbers. Leave the outcome to the Lord and keep writing and asking him to help you partner with the Lord. But stay with it. Because if you if you start getting all your identity in it, you start laying yourself out there, it'll kill you. It'll, it'll you know, not literally, of course, but it will, it will discourage you to the point of quitting. Stay with it. It's a long haul business. Write the next book. What a great word. Stay with it. Don't get stuck in the minutia of what's happening next or where, or where I might have failed. Stay with it. Stick to it. That's what we need to do. Each and every one of us. That's right. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. We greatly appreciate everything you've shared. It's been a blast. I've loved it. It's really fun. Thanks for having me. Ah, we'll have you back again. Sounds good. Great. And thank you folks. Thank you, my friends for joining us. Please take a moment to share this podcast with another writer or two. When the opportunity arises, post an episode review, maybe give us a star rating And as always, we'd love for you to hit that subscribe button. I greatly appreciate you because what you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I look forward to being with you for our next episode of Your Best Writing Life.